Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It is Tuesday the 11th of July at 7am and my name is Carnegie. I'm joined in the studio today with Fung and Ifka. Good morning. Hello. How is everyone? Yeah, (laughs) feeling good. Um, I have to admit I'm still a little bit jet lagged. I came back from Europe on Sunday morning. What a dream. It was a dream. Although having left France on Friday morning and coming back on Sunday morning, I'm like, what is time even? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> time does not exist for me. Um, I had like a 13-hour layover in Vietnam, which was actually really nice. But Did you, just... you leave the airport and go check out the city? Yeah, we, we did, um, but we didn't really go super far. Um, we did get to check it out a little bit, but you know, like when you've been traveling already for so long, it, you're, you're sort of in like a haze and mm-hmm. it's, it's very hard to like, and I feel like everything's less slightly blurry. So I feel like I didn't make the most of it, but got to see some family in that short amount of time, which oh, is really nice. nice. Yeah. So did you, do you have any food highlights from the trip? From Europe? Uh, I mean, it was so beautiful over there, just like 30 degrees every single day. So lots of ice cream. <laughs> yes. Can that be a highlight? Yes. yes. <laughs> lots of ice cream and ice coffees, which is not very like... European? <laughs> no, exactly. Um, I, I think the ice cream, honestly, that's all I can say. Like, that's what kept me going. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I was looking at photos of you with the ice cream and the sunshine while like sitting with seven heaters on and like shivering. I think the thing that might finally get me off Instagram for a little hiatus is everyone being in Europe at the moment and posting their Instagram stories. You're just one of the many, don't worry. I'm not putting it all on you. Yeah, I know. It's, It's rough being in Melbourne and seeing sunshine elsewhere. We'll get there soon, one day. Will we? I'm starting to think a lot. Um, All right, let's talk about what's coming up on the show this morning. We are going to play a chat between uh, Judith Peppard from Earth Matters and a Tasmanian artist, uh, Deborah Wace, who uses kelp and other endangered Tasmanian plants in her designs to uh, to show their beauty and to explain why we need to protect them. And we will then hear a conversation between Annie McLaughlin from Solidity 
Breakfast and Sue McKinnon from King Lake Friends of the Forest about the Supreme Court's recent decision uh, to uphold the findings against Vic Forests and their logging of the area. We'll then be speaking with Dr. Kim Liu, who is a GP and the New South Wales Chair of Doctors for the Environment Australia. Um, she's joining us on the show this morning to talk to us about an organisation she's part of called Australian Asians for Climate Change and the campaigns that they're currently working on. Following that, we'll be speaking to Katie Chan from 3CR's newest show, Hong Kongology, which is really exciting. So Katie will be joining us on the show to tell us more about how the show got created, what it's all about and what can what listeners can expect from future episodes. And finally, we'll be ending our show today speaking to Noura Mansour from APAN, uh, which is the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network. And Noura will join us on the show to speak to us about Israel's attacks on Janine refugee camp that started last week. We'll be right back with the news headlines after this. Serrated tussock is a noxious weed that has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grassland for many years. Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders to control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Visit serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. These are your news headlines for this morning, Tuesday the 11th of July. The US Supreme Court has ruled that non-discrimination laws cannot be enforced against businesses that offer expressive products and services. The case, 303 Creative versus Elenis, involved a web designer who wanted to make wedding websites but not for same-sex couples in the U.S. state of Colorado, where discrimination based on sexual orientation is prohibited. The court ruled that because the conduct involved her expression, it was in fact protected speech, and the non-discrimination law could not be applied. The decision opens up the floodgates for many businesses to discriminate against people on many grounds. Last week, the Refugee Action Coalition said that a fire started at Villawood Detention Centre in Sydney's West. This happened on Thursday, the 6th of July at about 11.30am. The fire brigade took about 15 minutes to tend the fire and immigration detainees could be seen evacuating the Latrobe building through windows. Fire and Rescue New South Wales said firefighters managed to quickly contain and extinguish the fire. This has, however, um, shown the light yet again on... Um, unsafe living facilities for refugees. In similar news, uh, the Australian government's detention of a refugee in Melbourne's hotels for more than 14 months has uh, found that it lacked ordinary human decency but did not breach federal laws, a court has found. Mustafa, a Kurdish refugee with significant health issues who was detained in two Melbourne hotels, sought damages from the federal government for what he believed was an unlawful detention that left him dreaming of sunlight. The judgment by federal court justice Bernard Murphy was a blow to humanitarian campaigners who argued that detention was cruel and unnecessary and hoped it may lead to hundreds of compensation payouts. Mustafa's lawyer said that his team would consider whether to appeal the decision and contest costs, arguing the case was clearly in public interest. And finally, 
it has been recommended that we have national guidelines on postnatal care to ensure the best possible start for families. A report based on Australian Institute of Health and Welfare data has revealed that Australian women are being discharged from hospital at record speeds after giving birth, with almost one in two mothers now sent home one day or less after having uncomplicated births. The average number of days women spend in hospital following childbirth has steadily declined from three days in 2011 to two and a half days in 2021. In 2021, most birthing people had a postnatal stay of three days or fewer, which is 75%. Government funding for the development of national guidelines for postnatal care and the transparency they will hopefully assist in better and longer care for birthing people and help them have a choice when it comes to all aspects of maternity care. So those are our news headlines for this morning. We are going to go to a track now. Uh, This song we're going to play for you to kick off this morning is New Song by Kian, and it's called Sunset. Breathing in, I'm trying 
That was Kian with Sunsets, and that track has a beautiful music video that goes along with it, if you did want to check that out. Uh, we're now going to revisit a chat between Earth Matters producer Judith Peppard and Deborah Wace, a botanical artist, fabric designer, and professional printmaker from Tasmania, who uses kelp and other endangered Tasmanian plants in her designs to show their beauty, tell their stories, and why we need to protect them. Deborah Wace is a botanical artist, fabric designer, professional printmaker, and ecological activist. She lives in Tasmania, and through her art, she endeavors to bring people's attention to the beauty of Tasmania's endangered and rare plants, including kelp and other seaweeds, and tell their stories. Deborah grew up in Canberra, so I was curious about who she came to be living in Tasmania, and it seems it had something to do with the Franklin River blockade. Oh, Tasmania, the hardest heart would understand. Just to feel your wilderness inside the things to me. So let the Franklin fall, let the wildlands be. The wilderness should be strong and free. From Kuda Kina to the southwest shore. I came to Tasmania when I finished my degree at Canberra School of Art. I came down to Tasmania with a girlfriend on bicycles for a month touring around, just thinking, where am I going to live? Tasmania was um, high on my priority list because my father, he was a botanist at ANU, Dr Nigel Wace, and he had been the expert witness to the High Court case for the Franklin Dam campaign case. So he came down here and went upriver and immersed himself in the rainforest and the botany of the Franklin and the Gordon catchment areas to assess that botany for the High Court decision and was very moved by the dedication and the love for country of the protesters and by the diversity, the huge diversity of flora. So partly I wanted to see some of what he was speaking about. On a bicycle, you get to see and smell and travel slowly through the landscape and Travelling around in 1988 or 87 it would have been, on a bicycle through Tasmania, there weren't as many cars on the road then. The bird song, the insects, the smells of the countryside and the forest really just made me want to know more about this. I just thought this place is so alive and so vibrant and I've been living in Tasmania ever since. And when did you start collecting plants and preserving them? I started in my childhood, really, because I had such an interest in form and function of plants. You know, I was much more the artist than the scientist. So as a child, I started this huge collection of shoeboxes, divided and divided again, and, you know, holding different sizes and shapes of gumnuts and leaves. And I loved it as a child. And when you started collecting as an adult, did some of those childhood experiences come back to you? The looking closely and the connection that that forms, the interconnection, that's part of what I love so much about it is the mirroring of form that you find in nature to yourself and realise that you're, you're an integral part of it. You're a small part. You're not the dominant species. You know, stop that. Stop trying to be the apex predator and be just at one with it. And the nourishing comfort that that provides... It's something really special and it requires you slowing down and looking, really looking much closer 
And especially when you're looking for tiny orchids or for mosses and lichens, you know, you've got to go slower. And when you go slower, you smell, you taste, you hear, you realize that you are part of the landscape. I formed a, a large private collection of pressed plant specimens across a whole range of species, you know, leaves of trees, ferns and mosses and lichens and fungi, uh, marine algae and many of the flowers and plants that are all part of the, the forest systems, the rainforest, the, the button grass plains. It's just endlessly fascinating. I think you've been collecting these plants and pressing them. I think it's been 30 years. Yeah, yeah, more than that even. Has it changed over the 30-year period? The kelp forests, the giant kelp forests are diminishing and that's noticeable. And you can find a lot more kelp that is degraded and washed up on the shore because the habitat is actually really under threat. So... Yes, you can see that when you're kayaking. You know, what you were kayaking over years ago as a kelp forest now is bare. You don't see it on the surface. I'm not out there snorkeling enough, but I do have friends that are, and they say, look, it's dire. You know, the the whole ecosystem is changing. The giant kelp forests have now been classified as a threatened ecological community because of the vast number of other species which rely upon a healthy marine ecosystem. So when you lose the structure that supports that, like the the huge trees in the forests or the giant kelp, you're losing a community that we don't even hardly know enough about yet. When did you move from admiring the plants, collecting the plants, uh, kayaking and seeing the kelp? When did you move from that to incorporating what you're seeing in your design? I wanted to bring this work to a larger field. I wanted to produce my work onto silk and fabrics so that people would have more of an idea of the beauty and diversity of what's out there in the natural world. And I've been putting my work onto fabric for the last 10 years or more, but the newly developed digitised work at highest resolution has been going on in the last five years. What does kelp offer your designs? Like, I mean, why kelp, I guess, is what I'm asking. Oh, because it's so grand. And when you swim amongst kelp, it's so just caresses your body. It's sort of weird. It's uh, It can be such an experience to have kelp on your skin. And I love the way that it's sort of striated. The kelp leaves look like a sandy bottom shore. You know, the ripples of sand are caught in, they're mirrored in the look of the leaf. I love the shapes. I wanted to speak about the story. It's really important to me to tell the story, to alert people and awaken people to the pressures that some of these plants are under and the contribution they make to to life on earth and to human life as well. The kelp is just one seaweed, one type of brown seaweed. There are different seaweed groups, the green seaweeds, the browns, the reds, the blue-green algaes, the sea grasses. We, we just say it rather glibly, but there's huge variation amongst these. You know, I think in Tasmania there's over 650 marine plants that have been recorded, and they're all so wildly different, and we know so little about them. There's much more research being done in ways that these seaweeds can help humanity or be useful in many different ways from, you know, their fabulous nutrition ways that can be used in pharmaceuticals or in lotions. There's so many uses for seaweed. Deborah Wace. I asked Deborah to tell me more about her activism. Advocating for wild places is 
endless, endless. As a citizenry, we're having to do the job that government should be doing. They should be doing this. And yet, you know, thousands of us mortgage years of our lives to help protect natural places and biodiversity, just to leave it the hell alone, you know, to protect it from the predations of developers or industry resource extraction. It's not an easy task. It takes all of us in different ways with different skill sets to do that. In the early 2000s, the type locality of Research Bay was under threat from logging and roading. And our community was like we all groaned because many of us knew what a campaign entailed and that we're up for a big fight. If we weren't going to do it, then we we're just going to sit back and watch it be be roaded and logged. And, and that's an untenable situation. And then what we found out was that this was actually where the French garden was planted by the, the Donald Castor expedition in 1792 and 1793. This was the type locality of first contact by the French in Tasmania, peaceful contact, and, and I stress that again, peaceful contact with the Lailakwani people. The French came here with a much more of an inquiring mind, not with a land grab ethic. Now, that may have come later, you know, who knows. The collections that the French made, botanical collections that La Belladier and Félix Lahaye made, inform our current knowledge of botany. We firstly had to find the information. It was all in French. It's been a really interesting educative process for the whole community to find out what happened in this one place that had ripples and repercussions all around the world? You know, that's one place. Logging and roading are going on ad nauseum. Roading and logging are going on ad nauseum around Australia. But in this one place, the northeast peninsula of Recherche Bay, it was stopped after a five-year campaign, and the Tasmanian Land Conservancy now manages the landscape for all of us, and protects its natural and cultural value. And the history and cultural significance of the area was important in preserving that land and saving it from logging. And it also led Deborah to apply for a Churchill Fellowship. I actually ended up winning it to go overseas to Europe to study the early French botanical record from Tasmania and bring back a body of work for fabric. And that's what I'm doing to utilise the earliest collections made that are treasured and held in herbarium collections in Florence and, and Paris and Kew Herbarium in London, many of these plants that I'm really familiar with. I just find it so fascinating how these works of art, which are botanical collections and all the identifying botanists that have come along and ascertain what it is and the notes of the day written on the paper of the day that came from the fabric of the day, you know, all of these things make it a, a piece of art and a piece of history. Deborah Wace, botanical artist, professional printmaker and ecological activist. And the work that people like Deborah Wace and Aaron Eager are doing to draw community attention to the loss of kelp forests in Tasmania and around the world is so important. Scientists are looking for ways to repair the damage to the kelp, but ultimately, practices that stop the devastating impact of the warming of the planet are more urgent than ever. Thank you to Deborah Weiss. To find out more about her work as an activist and a plant advocate, and how she incorporates kelp and other Tasmanian plants into her designs, just go to her website. All one word, deborahwaze.com. 
That clip there was Judith Peppard from Earth Matters chatting with Deborah Wace. Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We've got another song for you now. This one is King of Disappointment by Jem Kassar Daly. Nearly Had me convinced you were someone who wouldn't deserve I've got to tell all my friends why I got home so early Do you tell your friends about me or do you tell them nothing? But I expect something from the king of disappointment But nobody's calling you your majesty I'm not your
We've been listening to King of Disappointment by Jem Kassar Daly. The Supreme Court of Victoria announced on the 27th of June its decision on Vic Forrest's appeal of last November's landmark court decision in King Lake Friends of the Forest and Environment East Gippsland versus Vic Forrest, known as the Glider Case. The panel of three judges upheld Justice Richard's findings that Vic Forrest's actions were in breach of environment laws. The orders limiting logging in forests that are home to endangered gliders will remain. We're going to play a conversation between Solidarity Breakfast's Annie McLaughlin and Sue McKinnon from King Lake Friends of the Forest about their successful legal action to stop Vic Forest from continuing to log the old forest in the east of the state of Victoria. We've got uh, Sue McKinnon from uh, King Lake Friends of the Forest on the line. G'day, Sue. How are you? Good, good, thanks. Yeah, um, it's a, it's great news that the Victorian Supreme Court has, um, has thrown out the uh, appeal that the Vic Forest put up against the decision against the, them for their flagrant uh, illegal acts in the forest, isn't it? Yes, we're very relieved. Last Tuesday, um, the decision came down. Um, the 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 uh, the decision in November was um, um, and it meant that Big Forest had, had to completely rearrange what they did in the forest um, and they had to um, try to abide by the laws. And they were finding that so hard to do that there'd been virtually no logging since um, November last year. But we were all worried about the appeal and... Um, uh, although we, we we were sure we had our facts right in, in law, but uh, legal cases are quirky, um, and uh, and the appeal judges, the three appeal judges, just handed down their decision. All of the uh, grounds for appeal by Vic Forest were thrown out. Yeah, and what we're talking about is an injunction protecting native forests and species across Victoria from all logging. Um, and it and it was protecting um, areas uh, right across Victoria, wasn't it? Well, our court case, King Lake Friends of the Forest court case, covered the Central Highlands, so that sort of the forest, the tall forest east of the Hume, but uh, not further west than say the Baubles, and not further north than than Eildon. Um, it's a it's a very large patch, but it's not all of the logging east of the Hume. Um, Environment East Gippsland ran a case at the same time as, as we did. In fact, they started the case before us. And uh, so 
their case covered all of East Gippsland. Um, so, no, not all of the forest is covered by um, by our court, our court uh, decision. Um, but it does set a precedent, that's what you're saying. Yes, yeah, so all of the forest east of the hearing is logged in a certain way under a certain law and code. And anything east of the Hume is now pretty well covered by the precedent that, that has been set in our two cases. It must uh, have... Logging has not been uh, banned, so the court orders were that Big Forest must survey properly for yeah. greater gliders and yellow belly gliders, and they must protect them where they find them. Once they do that, they can continue to log. Oh, they chose oh. not to. They chose... they they To them... Surveying properly was so difficult that they didn't. They they have been try experimenting different ways to survey, and while doing that, um, they could not log because they were court, strict court orders saying you must survey properly. So until Vic Forest got their act together and worked out how to survey, um, they couldn't log. This is why. Um uh, taking the strategic uh, uh, option of using the law was... Uh, I mean, that's a really big deal, isn't it, for a community groups to do this? Oh, it, it's hugely risky. It, it's incredibly time-consuming. Uh, you have to have a barrister and a lawyer that, that understands environment law and, and law that's in the forest. And, um, and, and there, there isn't a lot of lawyers that, that are able to do that and we're fortunate to have Jonathan Corman um, and Kwabin Alabi and, and also Barrister uh, Kylie Sh- uh, Western Shiver to um, assist our case and, um, and and that doesn't come around all the time. No, no, you're quite That's right. Just, it is not available to everyone and it, it is, as I, did I say, expensive, but it's very expensive as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is very expensive to take anything to the uh, law courts. And Mm. uh, this is one of the reasons for how the big end of town uh, manages uh, dissent, really. And also, I think it's interesting that um, the anti-protest laws in relation to the environment in Victoria have focused on uh, 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 citizen scientists, because obviously the issue of not following the rules in regards to surveying coops properly really uh, undid uh, Vic Forest. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It was um, citizen science allowed these cases to go ahead and allowed us to prove that they were logging where greater gliders were. Um, if we just believed Vic Forest, they would say, no, we've, we've had a look, um, there's nothing there, we're protecting... X and Y, um, and they would continue on their merry way. Mind you, before we started our case, um, the Friends of Leadbeater Possum had their case in the federal court, and that went over many years. And the federal court judges did hand down a decision that Vic Forest was logging illegally in Victoria. Um, We, in fact, used the same clause that uh, the federal court judge looked at. And... Uh, not surprisingly, uh, the state uh, judges found the same thing. But the federal court judge decision was the federal court decision was handed down in 2020, and 
the Department of Environment did nothing to then say, OK, we, we really must regulate Vic Forest now because we've been told by a judge this is what the law means. They should have been regulating Vic Forest before that and we would not have had so much, you know, disaster in our, in our, in our wildlife. But um, they chose not to and they chose not to regulate Vic Forest even after that decision was handed down. And that's why we had to take it to court. They weren't doing it. Well, that's fascinating, isn't it? Because it uh, shows uh, how um, different parts of government uh, uh, interact with each other and that uh, Vic Forest obviously has um, quite a lot of weight when it comes to uh, furthering its own cause. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm really concerned about, you know... <laughs> I was concerned about Vic Forest, of course. Naturally, they're the they're the front line. They but they were set out to they were told to log. It's the government that should have been regulating its own laws that um, that are you know squarely to, to blame for this. And, um, and and it's the same government and the same regulator, the Department of Environment, that is now uh, supposedly the regulator. For Vic Forest, and Vic Forest does continue, will continue to log or to manage logging in the west of the state. That hasn't been banned, and I think some people. Well, when I say banned, the um, the premier did hand down a decision um, a month ago, saying logging native forest logging will end in January 2024. But when he said that, he only meant the logging under the Vic Forest allocation order, which is all in the east of the state. Vic Forest manages logging of native forest in the west of the state under a different act, under different laws. And the Premier has confirmed in Parliament that that logging will continue at least for another six months while the licences um, are still valid. And we don't know what will happen after June 2024 in the west of the state. Mm, that's really interesting. There's always these caveats, aren't there? Like nothing yeah. ever, you, you know, they say something and then that, then it it's not really, a, you think it's an absolute, but it's not an absolute. And the other one that's, uh, that I'm aware of is this business about um, uh, cutting down um, forests in the name of fire management. continue to be logging under different names and this is why this is my concern with the Department of Environment if they've they've shown their colours by not regulating Vic Forest and we have proven that and we've shown their colours. Um, so that's the same department that's now been put in charge of regulating fire management. They in fact do the fire management work um, and regulating Vic Forest into the future with their the licences they issue to people who will log in the in the West. Uh, Department of Environment will supposedly regulate um, all this this other work that they're demanding, like um, picking up fallen trees from storms. Uh, and, yes. Uh, you know, I call it disaster logging. Um, it, it's going in and, and looting after a disaster. And these forests need... Um, the, the, the trees on the ground to cover the ground or protect the ground. 
the, the animals such as Fasca gales, endangered animals, uh, use those logs to, to collect um, insects from. And, um, you know, it, the, the, they, it reduces the wind and the dryness in the forest. And yet the Department of Environment is sending big forests in to take away those logs and sell them for pulp. The yeah, paper, yeah, yeah, and and leave all the tops of those trees on the ground, which are, you know, if anyone is concerned about fire, it is the tops of the trees, the small branches, the leaves that are left in the forest that would be a concern in fire. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, what you're really pointing out is that all this money that's been wasted on big forests could actually be used to. Uh, uh, maintain forests, uh, you know, cultivate forests effectively. Well, we've we've research after research has shown that if we want to manage the forest to reduce the fire risk, we need the forest to be as old as possible. Mm. So we need to manage the forest to age it, and the the, the way to age it is to ensure that fire doesn't go in there and kill the forest and take it back to zero age. So the, the, the best thing to do is to stop the crest fires immediately they happen. And, and we have the technology to do that. Um, it's just that the standard way of firefighting in Victoria is, is uh, antiquated and old and um, they don't seem to have any urgency about fires that start way, way, way into the forest, away from people. They they do not put those out quickly enough and um and then they and then they, they bring that forest back to a young age. And oh, so what you're really yeah. saying is that what strikes me is that it sounds like there needs to be a massive education campaign to raise uh, awareness uh, and overturn stereotypic uh, sort of colonial notions about how we relate to the environment. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's um, the, the way well, I think many people have said that in the past. And, and why would the forest be any different? You know. Yeah, um, yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, before, because uh, we have been ch- chatting for a while, and this is actually a uh, an issue that. Uh, always keeps giving, Um, this uh, appeal went to the Supreme Court, the Victorian Supreme Court, and there is actually a a higher court. Uh, You're not expecting them to take it to another appeal, are you? Well, Vic Forest seem to have um, pockets that don't have any bottom, Um, and uh, uh, I would think that they could do that. They could take it the High Court. Uh, I don't know if there's any grounds. Oh, it's up to the High Court whether to accept that appeal or not. Right, yeah, that's right. And um, they may not. That was Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Breakfast chatting with Sue McKinnon from Kinglake Friends of the Forest about the Supreme Court's decision to uphold the findings that Vic Forest's actions were in breach of environment laws. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We're going to play another song for you now. This one is by Jess Cornelius off her album that came out in 2020 called Distance. It was one of those albums that I listened to on repeat in lockdown and it took me a few years to come back to it. But I've recently rediscovered and this song is called Body Memory. 
song there was Body Memory by Jess Cornelius. Kim Liu is a GP and the New South Wales Chair of Doctors for the Environment Australia. She is the child of Malaysian immigrants who came to Australia in the 1950s and is a part of the organisation Australian Asians for Climate Action, an organisation that aims to create awareness about the climate and environment within Asian Australian communities. She's joining us on the show this morning to talk to us about their ongoing work. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Dr. Kim. Oh, hello. Um, now, so, so thank you so much for inviting me on. Of course, we're so excited to have you. I know I just did a small intro for you, but would you also be able to introduce yourself and just tell us a yeah, bit more so about your I'd background? Like choose, I just noticed that it's weird on my, my side of the phone. It's a little bit muffly. So I'm just going to see whether if I put my... Just try it with the sound. I'm just going to put my earpieces. We can hear you fine, Dr. Kim. Okay. Can you hear us okay? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you okay now. All right, great. I'll put my iPad in and I can hear you clearly. Can you hear me clearly? We sure can. So if you just want to give us a little bit of an intro about yourself and your background, that would be great. Okay, yes. Okay, do you want me to do it now? Yeah. Yeah, so, so um, my name's Kim Liu and, uh, and I've been a doctor uh, for 34 years now and 
Yeah, she ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be a doctor. So now I've been working in Western Sydney for 34 years and it's, uh, and I love my job, seeing sort of generations of families. And so I've seen, I do look after three to four generations of families now. And uh, so I've been in climate advocacy now because I've seen the impacts of the heat and extreme weather on my patients since 2015. And so now I've actually ended up in quite sort of roles in peak bodies as well. So I'm on the Council of New South Wales Australian Medical Association and I'm on the Council of my own college for New South Wales and ACT, Royal Australian College of General Practitioners. And I was the most recent past chair of... um, Doctors for the Environment, and really in this in our climate movements, there are very few Asian people, even though we're sixteen percent of the population. So I've gone to meetings since two thousand fifteen, and there's very few Asian people. So a, a few friends of ours, um, actually in Adelaide and in Sydney. So this group actually started in Adelaide. We decided that we actually needed to find out why Asian people just did not seem interested in climate action in any area. And so we formed our group at the end of, uh, really at sort of like around the middle, loosely in July 2022. Uh, So here we are, Australian Asians for Climate Solutions. That's incredible. And one of your main campaigns has been to get Asian families cooking without gas. Can you tell us about this campaign and why it's important when combating climate change? Yeah, so, no, gas is, has been really marketed so well that people call it natural gas, but it's really a fossil fuel that when you combust it also has pollutants that impact us. Uh, So, kids with asthma are more triggered and also sensitizes with the nitrous dioxide from gas cooktops it's also sensitizes um, people to be more allergic to house dust mites and there's good uh, data regarding that and when you because i've grown up in an asian household and my family's malaysian so people are really always interested in food really talking about food or even when they're eating And most families have gas cooktops. Actually, my own family never had a gas cooktop. We always had an electric hot plate during the 1970s because my my family's been in Australia for a really long time. So um, with me, uh, with my surrounding families that my... Because my entire extended family is here now and everyone has a gas cooktop. And it's really hard when people cook with gas and see the flames and see how they even, there's this term called walking, which means um, that, you know, the heat has to be hot enough to, to stir fry and do all the cooking. And heat is associated with gas. And, uh, and people really love their gas cooktop because they've just been cooking on it for so long without knowing that, it's also a polluting source. Yeah, so, I think 
I think so, that, you know, as a as yeah. a South Asian person myself, um, I know that so much cooking relies on that, uh, you know, the hot heat from the from the gas stove. And I know that, you know, in Indian communities that would uh, if you tried to get them to stop using it, it would be met with a lot of resistance. Um, yeah. What has the response been like for you uh, trying to get families to switch? And, you know, especially from older generations, has there been a lot of resistance? Yeah, I can tell you the story of my mum. My mum's 82. And since she's moved in to her house that she's been, the current house, they've had gas. And so she's been cooking with gas now for 10 to 20 years. And so I actually had been talking to her. But then what happened is one day she turned on her gas burner and all four burners came on. So when I saw it, I thought, oh, my goodness, she's breathing in. There's something seriously wrong. And because she's elderly, I was really worried about her burning herself on the stove and, uh, like, breathing in all that air pollution. So I didn't, in the end, she wasn't, I didn't need to convince her because she could see it was dangerous. So she, we switched over to an induction cooktop for my mum. And, uh, and it took a while for her to get used to it. But now she's actually really happy because she can see it is it's just as hot as her previous gas cooktop. And she does a lot of stir-frying, including chakwe diao and a lot of other Malaysian food on it. But for her, it required the gas cooktop to to cease functioning and to actually change her cooktop. But now she loves it. Um, with the rest of my family, it's it's taken a little while. Um, but one of my cousins actually renovated her whole house and put in, instead of, putting it every sort of every single tip you could think of but then she still had a gas cooktop so it's actually taken a while and i think even with my own family it's hard and when i talk to other people um there are, i don't have many asian patients but i just talk to the community and when i say that you know like if they've especially if they've got children and children with asthma or people with asthma and um, and heart disease and they understand that the gas cooktop can actually trigger the, the disease, they they actually see the benefit of transitioning to an electric cooktop. Mm. But, you know, it's one of those things that not everyone can afford to change, switch over from gas to induction. So sometimes it's taking the steps like improving the ventilation in the house making sure that you have windows open when you're cooking with a gas cooktop uh, and, yeah, just making sure there's good ventilation. And part of the problem is that gas cooktops also emit the air pollutants even when they're off. Mm. Um, so, I mean, so it is actually speaking, in a way, speaking to people individually um, and looking at their own circumstances and what they can do. Uh, and, you know, people are really surprised when I talk to them about the air pollution from a gas cooktop. Like, even talking to my um, own group of doctors in my practice, and there are a few Asian doctors within my practice, people are surprised and and really, you know, like, it's like we always thought it was natural gas, but it's just been so well marketed. And now more people are cognizant of it um and there's quite a lot of groups 
actually spreading the message of how we should really electrify electrify our cooking. Yeah, and I think it's great that, you know, this campaign is being run um, by Asian Australians um, who are speaking within these Asian Australian communities that they're already in. Um, you know, can you talk to us a bit about how having a culturally sensitive approach to something like this is important? Yeah, it's, you know, with, when you're trying to actually make the change to a cleaner world, it's really uh, people will respond better within their own group if people are speaking within their uh, group. So you change from within rather than outsiders coming in tell, telling people what to do. Um, and it's the same in all areas. So in a way, because with us, we're kind of working within our own friends and family to start off with. But with talking, we've actually... Um, uh, Dr. Corrie Young is the main... Um, person who's been doing a lot of work within Australian Asians for Climate Action. So we've got a very simple pamphlet about gas and the problems with asthma with gas and the problem with sensitisation of allergens um, with gas. And then we've also got how induction on the flip side of the um, pamphlet to say how good induction cooktop is. So it is actually because one of the things we do is we're actually having sort of parties where we invite people who are naive about induction cooktops to a party. I'm going to have one in, at my house in, um, in August and they've already had a couple within Adelaide. So um, another thing we're doing is I'm going with one of our members who's a dentist our group is full of doctors and dentists at the moment to um, to see what we can do with Buddhist temples to take our portable induction cooktop because a lot of Buddhist temples also have um, gas-fired uh, cooktops to take the induction there to show them the how clean induction is and cook something for them within the temple. So this is for the monks and the people who go there. So... It's actually showing, uh, actually going to fates, and and they've done a fate in Adelaide where you take the, you take a portable induction cooktop and show that, yes, this is how it works, and because a part of it that you know people think, well, you know, you can't use your normal cookware, no, you can't because it works, it works in a different way, um, so it's getting people used to the idea, of seeing seeing how it works. Sort of trying to do see one, do one, teach one. Um, so it's really giving people the experience of cooking without gas. Yeah, that sounds that sounds um, like a really great way to go about it. Um, and I've seen on your website as well that you have the flyers in um, Chinese and in Vietnamese, which I'm sure is also really helpful, especially for um, older generations. Um, where can people find out more about the organisation and get involved? So the website, so our website is, um, is we're adding things to our website all the time. And like any new organisation, we're still in construction of many things. Um, but we're, it's we've very got very motivated people, so there's contacts on the website if you want more information. And we're always trying to grow our group, so and because we're very sort of um, centred in Adelaide and Sydney, and we really haven't started in the other states yet. 
Um, so we're looking at ways of expanding and really doing this radio show brings it into Melbourne. Um, and so we've got a few members in Melbourne, um, but we kind of need to grow the number of members in Melbourne as well. Yeah, so for any listeners who are interested, um, you can go to aa4ca.org for more information. Um, there's yeah, there's heaps of contacts and there's you can get in touch with the organisation there. Dr. Kim, that's all we have time for this morning, but thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about um, this really cool campaign. Thank you so much, Kanagi. Uh, thank you for having me on. So that was Dr. Kim Liu from Australian Asians for Climate Action talking to us about their campaign to combat climate change in Asian Australian communities. We are now joined by Katie Chan, who is the co-host of Hong Kongology, a new radio show on 3CR dedicated to gathering and sharing stories and voices of Hong Kong and its diaspora. She's also a researcher and ethnographer of the region. And Katie joins us on the show this morning to tell us more about her new show. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Katie. Thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Katie. And really, thanks for having me here to talk about Hong No, thank you so much for making the time this morning. Can you start by introducing yourself and how you and your co-host Kelly came to create the show? Yeah, sure. So, like, I, I'm from Hong Kong. I was born in Hong Kong and I grew up entirely in Hong Kong until my mid-twenties. And that was the time I came to Australia for my postgraduate study. And my study and my research uh, are also uh, about Hong Kong. And uh, so after I completed a few months ago, and Kelly and I, uh, Kelly and I have been friends for a couple of years. We met in Melbourne, and then she completed her postgraduate studies. And she she made a film on Hong Kong, and also uh, she she did her ethnography res- ethnographic research in Hong Kong. So we came up with an idea. How about like we don't want to, we still want to do something about Hong Kong, our hometown. So that's why. Um, this is a personal drive of, of, of doing um, uh, Hong Kongology. But I would say um, uh, we, we, we see the, the, the gap there, like for, for, for a community radio show. First, Cantonese. Our show will be broadcasted in English or Cantonese or a mix of both languages. And we reckon that on 3CR or in the space of community radio, we don't have that yet. While Cantonese is the fourth most spoken languages in uh, language in in Australia, and this is the first reason, and also um, kind of like Hong Kong has been experiencing a lot of political changes with this relationship with Britain, uh, its former colonizer with China, and people would say its current colonizer, and the relationship, the geopolitics of the region. Uh, have been changing, and the space to speak its own story or the space for the city to to tell its own history has been narrowing. And we really want to find a platform, find a space together and to share, to explore the story and voice the stories and voices of Hong Kong people. Yeah, and that- also. 
yeah, yeah, beyond the region. Like like a lot of changes are happening in the peripheral uh, region of China as well. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And something that's that is a core value here at Three CR is being able to tell those stories from people with lived experience um, who know what they're talking about and can offer an alternative perspective. Something that's not often given in mainstream media. So that's really exciting for your show. Um, in the first episode, you mm. and Kelly introduce yourselves and share an insight into the density of Hong Kong and the differences you noticed moving to Nam, Melbourne. How has yeah. this show helped you to notice and reflect on these differences, whether big or, or some of the smaller nuanced differences? Yeah, it, like, like this is a really good question. Thank you for asking. I do need some time to reflect uh, on my relationship with Hong Kong and a lot of stuff after doing the first show. So um, that was a pretty interesting journey, I would say. Uh, we did a live and, and um, kind of the questions Kelly and I um, uh, were going with the flow and through answering the questions, I did think a lot more about my personal relationship with Hong Kong. And for instance, um, uh, we didn't some, something when, when when we were doing the show, like we talked about uh, where we live in Hong Kong, the different uh, areas, the island, uh, uh, the city, the inner city. Uh, different places, and I think Kelly and I uh, have pretty have had pretty different experiences just living in Hong Kong. Uh, I grew up more in the inner city or the the, the central part of, of Hong Kong, and she did too. But she moved to the island side of Hong Kong, and through that conversation, I think I we were able to find out more like a non city side of Hong Kong that was pretty interesting and. And I really think that, like, by talking, by 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 talking about Hong Kong or talking about uh, um, uh, the life in Hong Kong, we we do uh, we we will be able to 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 we will be able to discover different sides of Hong Kong more and more with more and more conversation, and this is really fun. Yeah, definitely. And I'm sure you'll be able to do that as well as you bring on guests and, uh, yeah, yeah. Tell, tell more stories from, from, like you said, different parts of Hong Kong, different from t- people's different lived experiences. And we're really excited to, to hear that from, from your show as well. Um, in that first episode, I really liked hearing your and Kelly's responses to the question, what does Hong Kong mean to you? I was wondering if you could just briefly reflect on this question this morning um, and and as well as tell us what the show means to you. Uh, you briefly um, alluded to this before, but, yeah, just wondering if you could tell us in a bit more detail. Yeah, so it... it- it's another difference that I discovered um, uh, about my experience um, with Hong Kong and Kelly. Um, with and so Kelly in the show in our last uh, in our first episode, Kelly mentioned that in 2019, when the anti-extradition protests broke out in Hong Kong, she was uh, here in Melbourne, 
and she was listening the news, listening how the city changed, changed, and listening how uh, people reacted to 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 the government, the authorities' um, 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 reaction to the protest and the police brutality and things like that. And I was right there. Um, I was right there uh, in Hong Kong. And I remember there was a morning in June, uh, a morning, every day we, we, we had protests. So um, in June, I was walking in Admiralty, kind of a central area uh, where the protests were first the most intense. Um, so I was walking in Admiralty and I was going to work. I was uh, meeting my, my interviewees and then um, so... Uh, Hong Kong city space is a bit interesting. We grew, uh, we built up the city. We because exactly because our space is very limited, so we have to build uh, our our space vertically. We have really tall buildings. We have foot bridges. And we have uh, uh, flyovers, and then so um, in Admiralty on the road, protesters were protesting. They were setting up roadblocks to obstruct the legislators to go into the legislature, uh, like like uh, the parliament, to, to vote for the anti-extradition bill. And that was uh, kind of the police, the authorities deemed those, the space, the roads, um, as illegal zones. And then I was walking uh, on the flyover, and that you, you, that's legal to walk on, at that moment, and then I was walking on a flyover and just coming out from a shopping mall. And then a protester um, on the road asked, on the road asked me, not not me particularly, but he shouted to everybody on the uh, on the uh, footbridge, the flyover, and then uh, the foot, footbridge. And then um, he asked, "What are you afraid of? Come down. Are you a Hong Konger? If you." If you are Hong Kong, come down. We need you. Like we need you to join us. And then that question really haunted me. I didn't go down because I was traveling for work. And but that question, like you saw the protester, he was really young, and he was covering his face with the face mask, and then he was moving the belt, like the, the fences to set up the the roadblock, and he looked so tired, his eyes. And then I was really haunted by that question at that time. And even now, I still remember during this question. I mean, like kind of the Hong Konger identity, we are a, a, we are pretty, we never, ha- we never have a chance to have our history. We're British colony, and we're now part of the People's Republic of China. So who are we? Can we just be our own? Can we just claim our indigenous culture? Can we just be a, a place of our own? And and can I just comfortably say I'm a Hong Konger instead of a British subject, instead of a Chinese subject? And 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 that really haunted me. And I think my relationship with Hong Kong, going back to your question, um, is... Um, um, I'm really finding my subjectivity. I'm really like like when the city is finding the subjectivity. I think Hong Kong is part of me, and 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 I want to um, see its 
it being being its own voice more and more. And this goes back to the idea of having this show. We're not like advocating any political agenda. We really just want to uh, establish um, a space for people to explore what is Hong Kong, what's there, what Hong Kong means to you, to Kelly, to me, to different people. We all have different answers and we want a space to explore the subjectivity of ourselves and the city. Yeah, I love that response, Katie. Thank you so much for that and for sharing that anecdote with us. It seems like this show is going to be incredibly empowering, not just for yourself and for for Kelly, but perhaps other people from the Hong Kong diaspora who are living in uh, Melbourne. Um, On that note, Katie, to finish us off today, Mm. can you tell our listeners um, what time your show is on and where they can find out more information about Hong Kongology? Yes, so our show is, um, a weekly show running from 6 o'clock to 7 o'clock Melbourne time every Thursday on Freezy Hour and for, uh, Hong Kong time, which means uh, 4 to 6, uh, 4 to 5 o'clock. And for more information, you can uh, check out our Instagram account, Hong Kongology, Freezy Hour, H O N G K O N G, Freezy Hour. And for next week, Currently, we we do talk a lot. Uh, about, we we will be talking a lot about um, things happening in Melbourne or Australia relating to Hong Kong as well. So at the moment, uh, in our MIT gallery, there's an exhibition uh, with showcasing the work of 15 Hong Kong artists, and then we have invited uh, the the curators of the uh, of the exhibition to join us next, this week this Thursday to talk about the exhibition, which is titled Closer Together. Amazing. Thank you so much for that, Katie. And and uh, we'll make sure to direct listeners to your website in our show notes this morning. I just want to thank you again for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast this morning. We look forward to hearing more episodes of Hong Kongology in the future. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. And that was Katie Chan, who is the co-host of Hong Kongology, a new radio show on 3CR, speaking to us just now. You can check out their website as well at 3cr.org.au forward slash Hong Kongology. So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace, a treaty means equality, and a treaty means justice. Thank you. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au.
welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast. Our final guest for this morning is Noura Mansour, who is a Palestinian educator, political analyst, writer, activist, and community organizer from ACCA, who currently works as the community organizing and advocacy lead at the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, or APAN. Noura joins us on the show this morning to speak about Israel's attacks on Jenin refugee camp and the ongoing impacts of these airstrikes. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Nora. Um, thank you, Fong. Uh, good morning to you and your listeners. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us this morning. Uh, could you please start by giving our listeners a brief overview of Israel's attack on Jenin that began last week? Sure. So um, it, it's important to, you know, when we start talking about Jenin, um, to just remind maybe the, the listeners that Jenin refugee camp um, is a densely populated area and that people who are currently residing in Jenin refugee camps, um, um, their origins are traced back to cities and towns within the historical Palestine, that is, um, you know, what the international community likes to call today Israel, that, um, or what we call 1948 Palestine, uh, cities and towns like Nazareth and Haifa. And that, uh, what recently happened, basically, what we saw is um, not a, um, a pivotal a uh, step or moment in Israeli practices. Uh, it's actually, Israel has been consistent in its policies and practices against Palestinians since 1948. So this is a continuation of the ongoing ethnic cleansing and the Nakba, or what we call it, the Nakba catastrophe um, in Arabic, uh, that is aimed at, uh, d- you know, displacing and further displacing the Palestinians and emptying the basically Palestinian lands from Palestinian people to make ways um, and to make space for more Israeli set- settlements. Um, so in a nutshell, what we saw recently is um, basically the, the essence of the Zionist project as a settler colonial project that aims to exterminate or empty and remove the indigenous population um, to make ways for um, set- settlements, basically. Yeah, and I think that's really important to reiterate, like what you just said, Nora. Um, a lot of the media reporting around this is that Israel is, um, you know, organizing some sort of operation, quote unquote, operation on Janine refugee camp. And, you know, it's, it's like you said, nothing new, but has been an ongoing um, effect of the displacement and occupation of Palestine. Um, and, yeah, I think yeah. that's really important because a lot of the mainstream reporting out there makes it seem like this is something new, that it's some sort of, um, yeah, different, but, but this is not new, is it? No, it's not. It's not. I mean, Palestinians or, or um, um, the displacement of Palestinians always been um, the the goal of the Zionist project, and they they deployed different methods in terms of how they do it, whether by forcibly uh, evicting people at gun at gunpoint gun from their um, towns and villages in 1948, or massacres, or um, a, a apartheid regime, or you know siege on Gaza. Um, and different uh, methods that they have deployed. Uh, but we need to remind ourselves that, you know, refugees, Palestinians are targeted within and outside of Palestine, and Palestinian refugees have always been a target of uh, um, the Zionist project, that not only in Janine refugee camps, but also outside of Palestine. So this month, for instance, July marks um, the, uh, aniver- the assassination anniversary of two prominent Palestinian uh, leaders. For instance, a couple of days ago, we commemorated the assassination of Ghassan Kenafani, who's a, um, uh, an intellectual and a Palestinian writer. 
um, that was a, he was a refugee, and because his writing uh, dealt with liberation and, and return, the right of return, he was assassinated by the Mossad. And also, in a couple of days, on the 22nd of July, we will be commemorating the um, attack on Naji Ali, who's a Palestinian cartoonist. Uh, we're not talking about militants here, but uh, so even it doesn't matter. The point is, it doesn't matter what Palestinians do or what form of resistance they engage in, whether it's writing or you know drawing and arts and or on resistance. By the end of the day, if they demand, uh, if they have um, um, the courage to demand their rights in terms of the right of return, liberation, they will be targeted. So uh, Najil Ali, who drew the iconic figure of Hamdallah, the eternal refugee child who was uh, displaced from his um, uh, um, village, Al-Shajara village, in, in 1948, um, was, was basically attacked in London as well, also outside of, of, uh, of Palestine, um, and later on, uh, 30 days later, died from the wounds that he sustained. Yeah, and it really just boils down to Palestinian existence and resistance is is what uh, they're trying to basically remove. Right. Yeah. Yes. Any any form of resistance is basically criminalized and demonized, whether it's uh, through you know peaceful, nonviolent resistance such as the BDS movement, uh, you know, from BDS movement all the way to armed resistance. Anything the Palestinians do, and whatever you know, the Palestinian agency, uh, whatever form it takes, it's demonized and it's um, um, basically uh, targeted. Yeah. Uh, but but we we could also see that despite the ongoing um, um, attack on Palestinian agency and smooth, uh, which means steadfastness. Um, you know, 75 years later, we we still have Palestinians and non-Palestinians um, who, you know, demand free Palestine and a safe place. Um, uh, we, we could, you know, that basically is indicative of the failure of the Zionist project, including the, you know, the most recent operation um, and the objectives that the Israeli government had for that operation, for instance, you know, um, restoring the deterrence um, uh, or restoring security, as they call it. Um, and and that's, that was declared objective, and we could see that that was at the beginning of the operation. But as the operation started, they kind of changed and shifted the narrative around their objective, and they no longer spoke about eliminating the armed resistance in Janine refugee camp. And they started talking about calling down or um, delivering a certain blow to the armed resistance in Janine refugee camp. Um, uh, another undeclared objective was basically to the collective punishment, which is to, mm. to punish the community that was, um, you know, protecting um, and, and basically their, their sons and, and you know, um, uh, and daughters at, at engineering refugee camp. Um, um, and another undeclared objective was probably, um, um, which relates to Israeli domestic politics and the fact that the Israeli government currently is struggling uh, with, you know, the protests and everything, but also having leaders who are um, self-declared fascists and homophobes and whatnot that kind of puts Israel in, a, in an awkward position with its um, European allies and in the Western world. Um, so, but, but if we were to look in, in a, you know, uh, in the bigger picture, we could see that all of these objectives have failed. Mm. Uh, but what they did succeed with, the Israeli government, what they did succeed with is, you know, they, they killed 12 Palestinians. Um, they injured over 100 Palestinians. Um, dozens of them are critically wounded. They did succeed in targeting journalists. They um, 
same uh, with targeting hospitals and medical teams. Um, so that's that's their achievement in, in Janine refugee camp. Another achievement uh, would probably also, um, you know, quote-unquote achievement was that they managed to expose the Palestinian Authority as, um, or the, the lack of capacity of the Palestinian Authority to provide protection for the Palestinian people under Israeli occupation, um, which kind of raises and begs the whole question of security coordination that the Palestinian Authority has with Israel. Mm. Yeah, and so there's a lot there that you've that you've just said, um, Noura. Thank you so much for giving us such a detailed insight into what's happening. I did what, just want to touch on uh, very quickly. You you mentioned collective punishment um, and the the destruction that the refugee camp has suffered. Um, you know, they've also cut off like water supply and, and things like that. And people have been removed from their homes a second time. Um, I was wondering if you could just quickly talk about the impact that this has had um, uh, on families living within this refugee camp. Yes. Yeah, so, um, yes, as you mentioned, so the Israel, Israeli government deployed um, Air Force plus uh, over um, between 2,000 to 5,000 um, um, soldiers, uh, in addition to tanks and all of you know, it's other usual um, equipment that it uses. Um, basically, uh, Palestinian families have over 5,000 Palestinian families have been made um, um, refugees for the second time as they were forced to kind of evacuate their houses, um, um, you know, to remain safe. Um, they, the, Israeli tar- the Israelis targeted um, the elect- electrical um, infrastructure. The water supplies have been damaged. Um, the streets have been destroyed completely, um, um, you know, obviously in addition to hospitals that were uh, attacked as well. Um, so it's, it's the, basically, you know, uh, a recurrence or um, it's a, it, it, reminds, it reminds people of the Nakba mm-hmm. and how, you know, basically this is an ongoing thing and it never stops and it is likely not to stop as long as we have an, uh, an Israeli occupation yeah. and as long as we have apartheid regime that governs over um, you know, at least 6 million Palestinians and refuses to let the other 6 million Palestinians to um, basically exercise their internationally recognized right um, by returning to their homes. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important for non-Palestinians to remember as well, that like you said, this is an ongoing project. It's it's part of their design. It's not a one-off. It's not... Um, it's not different from anything else that's been happening um, for years now. So that's really important to keep in mind. Finally, Nora, um, how can listeners show support and solidarity with not just the community of Janine, but also with Palestine and with organisations such as APAN? Look, I think this is a great question because there are so many ways in which people can support the Palestinian cause um, and the Palestinian rights to self-determination and liberation and justice. Um, there's, um, you know, there are many uh, organizations and bodies and solidarity groups within uh, on this continent, and I would encourage everyone to kind of try and reach out and support these organizations. Um, um, APAN, as, as the, the umbrella organization or the, the peak body of uh, organizations who want to advocate and individuals who would like to advocate for Palestine, um, does that through three different streams, political lobbying, media, but also community organizing and community development. So I think any support that you could send our way, um, um, you know, if 
become an APEN member, uh, join uh, APEN's, uh, you know, uh, projects and programs, uh, but also other uh, organizations as well, that would be super helpful. So keep an eye on our um, website, on our social platforms, um, join our mailing list, and become a member of APEN. Awesome. And we'll make sure to include all those links in our show notes later this morning. Thank you so much for joining us on the show this morning, Noura, and speaking to us about what's been happening in Janine, but also just reminding our listeners um, about the bigger picture um, in Palestine. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time, Fong, and uh, have a, enjoy the rest of your day, you and your listeners. Thank you. That was Noura Mansour, who is the community organising and advocacy lead at APAN. You can find out more about APAN um, by visiting our show notes later this morning um, and visiting their website and their social media. Unfortunately, that is all we have time for this morning. Um, Just quickly want to give a rundown of what we had on today's show. We heard from Deborah Ways talking to Judith Peppard. Uh, Deborah is a Tasmanian artist who uses endangered plants in her artwork. And we also heard Annie McLaughlin from Solidarity Breakfast talking with Sue McKinnon about a landmark court decision in favour of King Lake Friends of the Forest. We then heard from Dr Kim Liu, um, who is part of the Australian Asians for Climate Change, an organisation that aims to create awareness about climate and environment within Asian-Australian communities about their incredible community um, initiatives. And finally, we spoke with Katie Chan from 3CR's latest show, Hong Kongology. She spoke to us about the creation of the show and what Hong Kong means to her. And just then we heard from Noura Mansour from APAN telling us about Israel's attacks on Janine refugee camp last week. Make sure you tune in to 3CR Breakfast every day of the week. We'll catch you next Tuesday right here on 3CR. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.